Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for another opportunity, Lord, to come before that throne of grace. We're thankful again for your preservation, your willingness, Lord, to sustain your people while living at the end of time. We pray that you would watch your spirit, that you will send the early latter rain upon us as a people that are living in the Antarctical Day of Atonement. Please, Lord, speak to us. May you hide me behind the cross of Calvary. May the very words that I that is spoken today be in spirit and in truth. May those that hear the message, Lord, um, think upon the words that are said, that they may hear your still small voice. May our minds and thoughts be taken into heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For the work of Christ that he is presently doing in the at this time, in the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary, bless us through your word. Speak to us, O Lord, in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. Again, I'd like to, again, uh, thank the, those that are, will hear the message uh, for joining us today. And uh, this message is current coming to awaken us, those of us who are, are believers, to the nearness of Christ's coming. And um, I'd like to start uh, this message um, is for the called and the chosen. Again, this message is the called and the chosen. I'll begin this study in the Word of God in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10 and 11. Thus saith the Lord in Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11, For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that, Go it forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. As we continue, um, we're going to go to the book of Matthew, and uh, we're going to the book of Matthew chapter 24. So as we continue in this study this morning, we're going to the book of Matthew 24, and we will begin in verse 5. Matthew 24, and we're beginning in verse 5 as we continue this study. Thus saith the Lord in Matthew 24, verse 5, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And I'll go to Matthew 24, verse 11. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And now I'll go to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4. 1 Peter, in the New Testament scriptures, in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4. James Peter. First Peter chapter 4, and uh, we're going to verse 12. 
First Peter chapter 4, and we are continuing in verse 12. And in First Peter 4, 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning fiery trial, which is to try you as those some strange thing happened unto you. Now, as we continue to connect the scriptures, we're going to go to the book of 2 Timothy. As we are in the New Testament, we're going to the book of 2 Timothy. Uh, let see, Timothy, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, and we're looking at chapter 3, and we're going to the 2 Timothy 3, and we're looking at verse 1. And as we study, it says, 2 Timothy 3, we'll be reading verse 1 and verse 2, and verse 3 and 4 and 5 through 6. 2 Timothy 3, verse uh, 1 through 6. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth-breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such turn away, for of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts. And now, we, as we continue this study this this morning, we also want to uh, continue in the book of Romans, Romans chapter sixteen. It's also in the New Testament, books of Romans, and we're going to Romans chapter sixteen, and we will read Romans chapter sixteen, verse seventeen and eighteen. Again, that's Romans chapter sixteen. Verse 17 and 18. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. And as we continue, we're going to, as we continue to study, we're going to go to the book of Matthew chapter 24. Let's go in there. As we're in the New Testament, we're going into the book of Matthew chapter 24. And in Matthew 24, we're going to read verses 6, 7, 8, and through 10. Matthew 24. Verses 6 through 10. Matthew 24 in verse 6. 
and ye shall hear of wars, and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines, and pestilences, and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And verse uh, also, verse 11, And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because of iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for witness unto all the nations, and then shall the end come. We continued in Matthew 24, um, as we read from verse 4 to verse 14. Now we, as we continue in this study, um, let's go to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 3. In the New Testament, we are going now to the book of Mark chapter 3. As we get to Mark, uh, which also in the New, right after the book of Matthew, Mark chapter 3, and as we continue, we, are, we will begin in Mark chapter 3, verses 13, 14, and 15. Again, that's Mark chapter 3, verses 13, 14, and 15. And he goeth up into a mountain, and called unto him whom he would, and they came unto him. And he ordained twelve, that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. As we continue, we're going over to uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Mark we continue, chapter 9, and verse 1. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there shall be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. As we continue, um, we would like to go to the book also of, we're going to return to the book of 
Matthew 26. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And we will be beginning in Matthew 26, verse 38 through 40. Matthew 26, verse 38 through 40. Then said he unto them, My soul is exceedingly, exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little farther, and fell down, and fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And then cometh he to his disciples and said unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand, that thou betray me. As we continue, we want to go back to verses 24 and 25. Matthew 26, verses 44 and 45. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and said unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand, that thou betray me. As we consider the message for this hour, we see that Jesus has given a, a message unto his people and we see that his disciples were asleep. And we're living in a time where God is calling his people to fulfill his will 
in these last days. And as we think about Jesus calling his people, we want to go to the book of Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. So let's go to Matthew chapter 9. In the midst of this, all the things that are happening in the earth, God has a special calling upon his people. He's called them to be his disciples, his true followers. So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 9. And we are looking, we are going to verse 35. Matthew 9, verse 35 through 38. Matthew 9, beginning in verse 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then said he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, plenteous but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Let's go to the book of Matthew chapter 10 as we continue. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. And let's go over to, as we continue, Let's go to Mark chapter 3.13 as we connect the scriptures line upon line and precept upon precept. Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 and we're going to verse 13, 14, and 15. Mark chapter 3 beginning in verse 13. We're going down to verse 15. And he goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would. And they came unto him, and he ordained twelve that they should be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and to have power to heal sicknesses, and to cast on devils. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. As we go over to the book of Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you that there shall there that there be some of them that stand here 
which shall not taste death, will not shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Let us pray. O most kind beloved Heavenly Father, we come before thy throne of grace. Lord, we are praying for those that would hear the word this day, uh, that they would receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as the world is astir, uh, there are rumors of wars, there are different type of events that are going on in the earth, all different type of controversies. But amidst the controversy and amidst the things that are experienced in the lives of the humans, humanity upon the earth, Lord, you are sending forth a message. You're calling your disciples to enter into the work to be like you, to be like you in character, to have a spirit of uh, compassion, love, mercy, filled with grace. You're calling your disciples, your followers, to enter into work of being medical missionary evangelists, to go forward to to help those that are in need, to minister to those that are hungering, those that are thirsting, those that need to be healed from all manner of diseases, both spiritually, mentally, and physically. So, Father, we pray that those that would hear the message would hear your still small voice and that they would enter into this work of ministering to the needs of the hurting, of the suffering, of all those that are going through different mental anguish or pain, depression, anxiety, uh, those that are have lost hope, those that are contemplating suicide, those that are in need of healing from all manner of diseases and sickness of the body, mind, soul, and spirit. May those that hear, those followers, your disciples, enter into the work and fulfill your promise, Lord. We know that we're in the end of time, and so you have given us your word, your message for such a time as this. And as uh, I'll turn over to Matthew twenty four fourteen, we're given a commission there. And in Matthew twenty four, verse fourteen. And in Matthew twenty four fourteen, thus saith the Lord, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. And as this gospel is going forth, it also ties into the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 14. And there's a message given there, uh, Revelation chapter 14. Let's returning to Revelation 14. 
we're going to read the, the message that is given us called the Three Angels' Messages. Revelation 14 and beginning, beginning in verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, kindred, kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth, and the sea and the fountains of waters. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead, or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints, and here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Our most kind, beloved Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity to come before thy throne of grace. And Lord, we are thankful for the blessings of another day, the blessings, Lord, that you have preserved our life, have kept us, Lord, and sustained us, and have allowed us to have another day that we have the breath of life in our bodies, another day that we can praise you and can look to the heavenly sanctuary as you're interceding on our behalf in the heavenly sanctuary as our high priest. We come before you as we are children, seeking your face, seeking your will to be done in our hearts and in our lives. We pray, Father, for an experience tonight in your word to understand more so your character and to be partakers of a divine nature. So, Father, we ask that you would be with us tonight in a special way. I ask, Lord, that you would hide me behind the cross of Calvary, or that you would pour out your Spirit, or that you would create in us clean hearts and a right spirit, renew our minds and our hearts, Allow us to have the necessary, the needed experience in this antitypical day of atonement and prepare us, O Lord, through your word tonight to be closer to thee, to have a renewed experience and to have an experience that will give us 
what is needed, Lord, to fulfill your will. May your word become life in us. Let this word that will be given tonight renew our hearts, cleanse our souls, purify our minds, and Lord, live in us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight's message, as we are looking at the message tonight, the, the title of the message tonight is, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There's one word that was we, we uh, read out of Webster's Dictionary. That word is called acquiescence. And that's A-C-Q-U-I-E-S-C-E. Acquiesce, which is to accept, agree, or allow by, by to allow something to happen by staying silent or by not arguing. And this is a very important word. And... Um, we see this is a character trait that is considered worthy because it allows us to see that we have to be willing to not be moved, not to be pushed, not to, um, when coming in contact with someone who may have a spirit of cantankerousness, uh, a spirit that is pushing us to respond in a negative way to become angry. So this is something that we have a great need of. To be able, again, to accept, agree, or allow something to happen by staying silent or by not arguing. Now another word that ties in with the message tonight is the word meek. And we have probably remember um, reading about the meek and one of the uh, one of the um, the the where it's being defined in the dictionary Meek is defined as having or showing a quiet, gentle nature. The meek are enduring, uh, uh, someone who is willing to endure injury with patience. Again, having or showing a quiet, gentle not designed to not designed um, to contend or being patient and without resentment. Now where we will see this character trait um, shown is in um, many of us may remember the experience of Moses. In the book of Numbers, chapter 12, verse 3, 
the word of the Lord says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon all the face of the earth. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, it also reads, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give thee rest. Matthew 11, verse 29 also says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. And as we continue in Matthew 11, uh, continuing in verse 30, For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. As we continue this study, we will go into the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6, verse 16. And in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6, verse 16, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. And now we will go over to the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 25. And we'll be reading Psalms chapter 25, verses 6, uh, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, through 14. Beginning again in Psalms chapter 25, beginning in verse 6. Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies, and thy loving kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions, according to thy mercy. Remember thou me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. As we continue, Psalms 25 and verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. What man is he that Feareth the Lord, him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. His soul shall dwell at ease, and his seed shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Matthew twenty five verse Matthew twenty five verse fourteen. Now we will go to the book of Matthew 11, Matthew 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest 
onto your souls. Uh, Psalms 37, verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Now we will go over to the book of Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. Exodus 20, verse 1 and 2. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of the, of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Exodus twenty verse three: Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now we would go to the book of Deuteronomy chapter five. Deuteronomy chapter five. As we're turning to the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to Deuteronomy chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 6, 7, and 8. Beginning again in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6, 7, and 8. The word of the Lord says, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage. Thou shalt have none other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters beneath the earth. Now we will go, as we continue, Deuteronomy Chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Deuteronomy 5 verse 11 says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Now we will go to the book of Exodus 23. Exodus chapter 23. And let's see, Exodus 23, and we will be going to... Exodus 23, and we're looking at verse 1. Exodus 23, verse 1. Thou shalt not raise a false report. Put not thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. And we will again go back to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 5. In the book of Matthew, chapter 5. And verse 5. Book of Matthew chapter 5. We're reading in verse 5. And the word of the Lord says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And now I will go to the book of 
sons and daughters of God. Sons of daughters, sons and daughters of God. And this is page eighty-two. And this is again we're continuing speaking on the topic of meekness. The meek shall inherit the earth. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach in his way. Psalms 25, 9. You will have to learn the important lesson of what it is to be a man in the sight of God. It is to be like Jesus, meek and lowly of heart, to guard the interests of others more sacredly than you would your own. It should be carried out in your daily life and practice, showing that you have not been playing truant or a dull scholar in the school of Christ. Selfishness cannot exist in a heart where Christ dwells. If cherished, it will crowd out everything besides. It will lead you to follow inclination rather than duty, to make self the subject of thought and to gratify and indulge yourself instead of seeking to be a blessing to others. Your wants, your pleasures will come before everything else. True happiness is to be found not in self-indulgence and self-pleasing, but in learning of Christ. Those who trust to their own wisdom and follow their own ways go complaining at every step because the burden which selfishness binds upon them is so heavy. Jesus loves the young, and he longs to have them possess that peace which he alone can impart. He bids them learn of him, he bids them learn of him meekness and lowliness of heart. This precious grace is rarely seen in the youth of the present day even in those who profess to be Christians. Their own ways seem right in their eyes. In accepting the name of Christ, they do not accept the character. Therefore, they know nothing of the joy and peace to be found in His service. The meekness of Christ, manifested in the home, will make the inmates happy. It provokes no quarrel, gives back no angry answer, but soothes the irritated temper and diffuses a gentleness that is felt by all within its charmed circle. Wherever cherished, it makes the families of earth a part of the one great family above. Let us pray. O most kind, beloved Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word, for the message that you've given us tonight. We're praying, Father, that you would be with all that would hear your word, that your word would be life eternal, that those that each mind, each heart would be renewed, and that all would seek to examine their hearts to see where they can be partakers of the divine nature, which is the divine nature of Christ, to have his character of meekness, 
Lord, bless your people. Allow them to have the necessary experience in this time, in this antitypical day of atonement, is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. The Origin of Evil Our Heavenly Father, as we come into this very important topic that affects every man, woman, child, the earth and all, that affects the whole world, we invite, first of all, we ask, Father, we come before you as we are as sinners, realizing that we cannot in our own power and strength, overcome our evil tendencies towards sin. So, Lord, as we dwell into this particular topic this morning, we ask, Father, that you would forgive us for our sins, our transgressions, and our iniquities, and that you would cleanse us, O Lord, from all unrighteousness. We pray even now that you would pour out the Spirit upon us as a people, that are living in the end of time, in the antitypical day of atonement. And as our High Priest, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is interceding on our behalf in the most heavenly and most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary, we send our petitions up to the throne of grace, because you said, Come boldly to the throne of grace, that ye may receive mercy and help in time of need. And so, Lord, we come before you, as we are wretched, blind, and naked, as a people that are called, that are chosen, and that you desire to watch your spirit upon, that you desire to fill with your spirit. But because of our sinful nature, Lord, we know that you said our righteousness is as filthy rags. So we come before you in our wretched condition, blinded and naked, asking that, first of all, that you would reveal to us those sinful character traits that we have, our car the carnal man, our carnal nature that is enmity against thee, and that you would bring to our minds our attentions, O Lord, those things in our characters that are cultivated in the hereditary tendencies towards evil, towards sin, and that as the message goes forth this morning, that you will reveal to us our great need of Christ. Even now, Lord, we invite the Holy Spirit to come, that you would hide me behind the cross of Calvary, or that you would send an angel to lift a live coal from off the altar of sacrifice to place upon my lips. We pray for your word, your message this morning, that it would be in spirit and in truth, and that Again, we ask that you would hide me behind the cross of Calvary and that your word would come forth with power and that your people would hear your still voice, small voice and that the word would have power to convert every heart. Lord, we ask that you would cleanse every heart, renew our minds, restore in us a right spirit, and Lord, save us in your kingdom, is our prayer. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Again, I'd like to welcome all of those that are coming on the line and those that would hear this particular message at the end of time. Brothers and sisters, we're truly living at the end of time and what the Bible would call the last days. And so as we dwell upon this very important topic, and this topic is, the name of the title of this is The Origin of Evil. To many minds, the origin of sin and the reason for its existence are a source of great perplexity. They see the work of evil with its terrible results of woe and desolation. And they question how all this can exist under the sovereignty of one who is infinite in wisdom, as in power, and in love. Here is a mystery of which they find no explanation. And in their uncertainty and doubt, they are blinded to truths plainly revealed in God's word and essential to salvation. There are those who in their inquiries concerning the existence of sin endeavor to search into that which God has never revealed. Hence, they find no solution of their difficulties and such as are actuated by a disposition to doubt and cavil seize upon this as an excuse for rejecting the words of Holy Writ. Others, however, fail of a satisfactory understanding of the great problem of evil. From the fact that tradition and mis misinterpretation have obscured the teaching of the Bible concerning the character of God, the nature of his government, and the principles of his dealing with sin. It is impossible to explain the origin of sin so as to give a reason for its existence. Yet enough may be understood concerning both the origin and the final disposition of sin to make fully manifest the justice and benevolence of God in all his dealings with evil. Nothing is more plainly taught in Scripture than that God was in no wise responsible for the entrance of sin, that there was no arbitrary withdrawal of divine grace, no deficiency in the divine government that gave occasion for the uprising of rebellion. Sin is an intruder for whose presence no reason can be given. It is mysterious, unaccountable, to excuse it is to defend it. Could excuse for it be found, or cause be shown for its existence, it would cease to be sin. Our only definition of sin is that given in the word of God. It is the transgression of the law. It is the outworking of a principle at war with the great law of love, which is which is the foundation of the divine government. Before the entrance of evil, there was peace and joy throughout the, the universe. All was in perfect harmony with the great Creator's will. Love for God was supreme. Love for one another impartial. Christ, the Word, the only begotten of God, was one with the Eternal Father, one in nature, in character, 
and in purpose. The only being in all the universe that could enter into all the counsels and purposes of God. By Christ, the Father wrought in the creation of all heavenly beings. By him were all things created that are in heaven, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. And to Christ equally with the Father all heaven gave allegiance. The law of love being the foundation of the government of God, the happiness of all created beings depended upon their perfect accord with his great principles of righteousness. God desires from all his creatures the service of love, homage that springs from an intelligent appreciation of his character. He takes no pleasure in a forced allegiance, and to all he grants freedom of will that they may render him voluntary service. But there was one that chose to pervert this freedom. Sin originated with him, who, next to Christ, had been most honored of God, and who stood higher, highest in power and glory among the inhabitants of heaven. Before his fall, Lucifer was first of the, of the covering cherubs, holy and undefiled. Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. Ezekiel 28, 12-15 Lucifer might have remained in favor with God, beloved and honored by all the angelic host, exercising his noble powers to bless others and to glorify his Maker. But says the prophet, Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty, and thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. Verse 17, Ezekiel 28, verse 17. Little by little, Lucifer came to indulge a desire for, for self-exaltation. Thou hast set thine heart as the heart of God. Thou hast said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Isaiah 14, verse 6, and 13 and 14. Instead of seeking to make God supreme in the affections and allegiance of his creatures, it was Lucifer's endeavor to win their service and homage to himself, and covering the honor which the, which the infinite Father had bestowed upon his Son, this prince of angels aspired to power which was the prerogative of Christ alone to wield. All heaven had rejoiced 
to reflect the Creator's glory and to show forth His praise. And while God was thus honored, all had been peace and gladness. But a note of discord now marred the celestial harmonies. The service in exaltation of self, contrary to the Creator's plan, awakened forebodings of evil in minds to whom God's glory was supreme. The heavenly councils pleaded with Lucifer. The Son of God presented before him the greatness, the goodness, and the justice of the Creator and the sacred, unchanging nature of his law. God himself had established the order of heaven. And in departing from it, Lucifer would dishonor his Maker and bring ruin upon himself. But the warning given in infinite love and mercy only aroused a spirit of resistance. Lucifer allowed jealousy of Christ to prevail, and he became the more determined. Pride in his own glory nourished the desire for supremacy. The high honors conferred upon Lucifer were not appreciated as the gift of God and called forth no gratitude to the Creator. He glorified in his brightness and exaltation and aspired to be equal with God. He was beloved and reverenced by the heavenly host. Angels delighted to ex execute his commands, and he was clothed with wisdom and glory above them all. Yet the Son of God was the acknowledged sovereign of heaven, one in power and authority with the Father. In all the counsels of God, Christ was a participant, while Lucifer was not permitted thus to enter into the divine purposes. Why, question this mighty angel, should Christ have the supremacy? Why is it he thus honored above Lucifer? Leaving his place in the immediate presence of God, Lucifer went forth to diffuse the spirit of discontent among the angels, working with mysterious secrecy and for a time concealing his real purpose under an appearance of reverence for God, he endeavored to excite dissatisfaction concerning the laws that govern heavenly beings, intimating that they imposed an unnecessary restraint. Since their nature were, were holy, he urged that the angels should obey the dictates of their own will. He sought to create sympathy for himself by representing that God had dealt unjustly with him in bestowing supreme honor upon Christ. He claimed that in aspiring to greater power and honor, he was not aiming at self-exaltation, but was seeking to secure liberty for all the inhabitants of heaven, that by this means they might attain to a higher state of existence. God in his great mercy bore along with Lucifer. He was not immediately degraded from his exalted station when he first indulged the spirit of discontent, not even when he began to present his false claims before the loyal angels. 
Long once was he retained in heaven. Again and again he was offered pardon on condition of repentance and submission. Such efforts as only infinite love and wisdom could devise were made to convince him of his error. The spirit of discontent had never before been known in heaven. Lucifer himself did not at first see whether he was drifting. He did not understand the real nature of his feelings, but as his dissatisfaction was proved to be to be without cause, Lucifer was convinced that he was in the wrong, that the divine claims were thus was just, and that he ought to acknowledge them as such before all heaven. Had he done this, he might have saved himself and many angels. He had not at this time fully cast off his allegiance to God. Though he had forsaken his position as the covering cherub, yet if he had been willing to return to God, acknowledging the Creator's wisdom and satisfied to fill the place appointed him in God's great plan, he would have been reinstated in his office. But pride forbade him to submit. He persistently defended his own course, maintained that he had no need of repentance, and fully committed himself in the great controversy against his Maker. All the powers of his master mind were now bent to the work of deception to secure the, the sympathy of the angels that had been under his command. Even the fact that Christ had warned and counseled him was perverted to serve his tra traitorous designs. To those whose loving trust bound them most closely to him, Satan had represented that he was wrongly judged, that his position was not respected, and that his liberty was to be abridged. From misrepresentation of the words of Christ, he passed to prevarication and direct falsehood, accusing the Son of God of a design to humiliate him before the inhabitants of heaven. He sought also to make a false issue between himself and the loyal angels, all whom he could not subvert and bring fully to his side, he accused of indifference to the interests of heavenly beings. The very work which he himself was doing he charged upon those who remained true to God. And to sustain his charge of God's injustice toward him, he resorted to misrepresentation of the words and acts of the Creator. It was his policy to perplex the angels with subtle arguments concerning the purposes of God. Everything that was simple he shrouded in mystery, and by artful perversion cast doubt upon the plainest statements of Jehovah. His high position in such close connection with the divine administration gave greater force to his representations, and many were induced to unite with him in rebellion against heaven's authority. God in his wisdom permitted Satan to carry forward his work until the spirit of 
disaffection ripened into active revolt. It was necessary for his plans to be fully developed that their true nature and tendency might be seen by all. Lucifer, as the anointed cherub, had been highly exalted. He was greatly loved by the heavenly beings, and his influence over them was strong. God's government included not only the inhabitants of heaven, but all of all the worlds that he had created. And Satan thought that if he could carry the angels of heaven with him in rebellion, he could carry also the other worlds. He had artfully presented his side of the question, employing sophistry and fraud to secure his objects. His power to deceive was very great, and by disguising himself in a cloak of falsehood, he had gained an advantage. Even the loyal angels could not fully discern his character or see to what his work was leading. Satan had been so highly honored and all his acts were so clothed with mystery that it was difficult to disclose to the angels the true nature of his work. Until fully developed, sin would not appear the evil thing it was. Heretofore it had had no place in the universe of God, and holy beings had no conception of its nature and malignity. They could not discern the terrible consequences that would result from setting aside the divine law. Satan had at first concealed his work under a specious profession of loyalty to God. He claimed to be seeking to promote the honor of God, the stability of his government, and the good of all the inhabitants of heaven. While instilling discontent into the minds of the angels under him, he had artfully made it appear that he was seeking to remove dissatisfaction. When he urged that changes be made in the order and laws of God's government, it was under the pretense that these were necessary in order to preserve harmony in heaven. In his dealing with sin, God could employ only righteousness and truth. Satan could use what God could not, flattery and deceit. He had sought to falsely falsify the word of God and had misrepresented his plan of government before the angels claiming that God was not just in laying laws and rules upon the inhabitants of heaven, that in requiring submission and obedience from his creatures, he was seeking merely the exaltation of himself. Therefore, it must be demonstrated before the inhabitants of heaven, as well of all the worlds, that God's government was just, his law perfect. Satan had made it appear that he himself was seeking to promote the good of the universe. The true character of the usurper and his real objects must be understood by all. He must have time to manifest himself by his wicked works. The discord which his own course had caused in heaven, Satan charged upon the law and government of God. All evil he declared to be the result of the divine administration. 
he claimed that it was his own object to improve upon the statues of Jehovah. Therefore, it was necessary that he should demonstrate the nature of his claims and show the working out of his proposed changes in the divine law. His own work must condemn him. Satan had claimed from the first that he was not in rebellion. The whole universe must see the deceiver unmasked. From when it was decided that he could no longer remain in heaven, infinite wisdom did not destroy Satan, since the service of love can alone be acceptable to God. The allegiance of his creatures must rest upon a conviction of his justice and benevolence. The inhabitants of heaven and of other worlds, being unprepared to comprehend the nature of consequences of, of sin, could not then could not then have seen the justice and mercy of God in the destruction of Satan. Had he been immediately blotted from existence, they would have served God from fear rather than from love. The influence of the deceiver would not have been fully destroyed, nor would the spirit of rebellion have been utterly eradicated. Evil must be permitted to come to maturity. For the good of the entire universe through ceaseless ages, Satan must more fully develop his principles that his charges against the divine government might be seen in their true light by all created beings, that the justice and mercy of God and the immutability of his love of his law might forever be placed beyond all question. Satan's rebellion was to be a lesson to the universe through all coming ages, a perpetual testimony to the nature and terrible results of sin. The working out of Satan's rule, its effect upon both men and angels, would show what must be the fruit of setting aside the divine authority. It would testify that with the existence of God's government and His law is bound up the well-being of all the creatures He has made. Thus the history of this terrible experiment of rebellion was to be a perpetual safeguard to all holy intelligences to prevent them from being deceived as to the nature of transgression to save them from committing sin and suffering its punishments. To the very close of the controversy in heaven, the great usurper continued to justify himself. When it was announced that with all his sympathizers he must be expelled from the abodes of bliss, then the rebel leader boldly avowed his contempt for the Creator's law. He reiterated his claim that angels needed no control, but should be left to follow their own will which would ever guide them right. He denounced the divine statues as a restriction of their liberty and declared that it was, it was his purpose to secure the abolition of, of law that freed from this restraint the host of heaven might enter upon a more exalted, more glorious state of existence. With one accord, Satan and his host threw the blame of their rebellion wholly upon Christ, declaring that if they had not been 
reproved, they would never have rebelled. Thus stubborn and defiant in their disloyalty, seeking vainly to overthrow the government of God, yet blasphemously claiming to be themselves the innocent victims of oppressive power, the arch-rubble and all his sympathizers were at last banished from heaven. The same spirit that prompted rebellion in heaven still inspires rebellion on the earth. Satan has continued with men the same policy which he pursued with the angels. His spirit now reigns in the children of disobedience. Like him, they seek to break down the restraints of the law of God and promise men liberty through transgression of its precepts. Reproof of sin still arouses the spirit of hatred and resistance. When God's messages of warnings are brought home to the conscience, Satan leads men to justify themselves and to seek the sympathy of others in their course of sin. Instead of correcting their errors, they excite indignation against the reprover, as if he were the sole cause of difficulty. From the days of righteous Abel to our own time, such is the spirit which has been displayed toward those who dare to condemn sin. By the same misrepresentation of the character of God as he had practiced in heaven, causing him to be regarded as severe and tyrannical, Satan induced man to sin, and having succeeded thus far, he declared that God's unjust restriction had led to man's fall, as they had led to his own rebellion. But the Eternal One himself proclaims his character. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. In the banishment of Satan from heaven, God declared his justice and maintained the honor of his throne. But when man had sinned through yielding to the deceptions of, the apostate, of this apostate spirit, God gave an evidence of his love by yielding up his only begotten son to die for the fallen race. In the atonement, the character of God is revealed. The mighty argument of the cross demonstrates to the whole universe that the universe that the course excuse me the mighty argument of the cross demonstrates to the whole universe that the course of sin which Lucifer had chosen was in no wise chargeable upon the government of God. In the contest between Christ and Satan during the Savior's earthly ministry the character of the great deceiver was unmasked. Nothing could so effectually have uprooted Satan from the affections of the heavenly angels and the whole loyal universe as did his cruel warfare upon the world's Redeemer. The daring blasphemy of his demand that Christ should pay him homage, his presumptuous boldness in bearing him to the mountain summit and the pinnacle of the temple, the malicious intent betrayed in urging him to cast himself down from the dizzy height the unsleeping malice that hunted him from place to place, inspiring the hearts of priests and people to reject his love, and at the last to cry, Crucify him! Crucify him! 
All this excited the amazement and indignation of the universe. It was Satan that prompted the world's rejection of Christ. The prince of evil exerted all his power and cunning to destroy Jesus, for he saw that the Savior's mercy and love, his compassion and pitying tenderness were representing to the world the character of God. Satan contested every claim put forth by the Son of God and employed men as his agents to fill the Savior's life with suffering and sorrow. The sophistry and falsehood by which he had sought to hinder the work of Jesus, the hatred manifested through the children of disobedience, his cruel accusations against him, whose life was one of unexampled goodness, all sprang from deep-seated revenge. The pent-up fires of envy and malice, hatred and revenge, burst upon, burst forth on Calvary against the Son of God, while all heaven gazed upon the scene in silent horror. When the great sacrifice had been consummated, Christ ascended on high, refusing the adoration of angels until he had presented the request, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. John seventeen twenty four. Then, with inexpressible love and power, came forth the answer from the Father's throne, that all the angels of God worship him, Hebrews 1, verse 6. Not a stain rested upon Jesus. His humiliation ended, his sacrifice completed, there was given unto him a name that is above every name. Now the guilt of Satan stood forth without excuse. He had revealed his true character as a liar and a murderer. It was seen that the very same spirit with which he ruled the children of men who were under his power he would have manifested had he been permitted to control the inhabitants of heaven. He had claimed that the transgression of God's law would bring liberty and exaltation, but it was seen to result in bondage and degradation. Satan's lying charges against the divine character and government appeared in their true light. He had accused God of seeking merely the exaltation of himself and requiring submission and obedience from his creatures, and had declared that while the Creator exalted, exacted self-denial from all others, he himself practiced no self-denial from all others. He himself practiced no self-denial and made no sacrifice. Now it was seen that for the salvation of a fallen and sinful race, the ruler of the universe had made the greatest sacrifice which love could make. For God was in Christ reconciling the whole world unto himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19 It was seen also that while Lucifer had opened the door for the entrance of sin by his desire for honor and supremacy, Christ had in order to destroy sin humbled himself and become obedient unto death. God had manifested his abhorrence of the principles of rebellion. All heaven saw his justice revealed, both in the condemnation of Satan and in the redemption of man. Lucifer had declared that if the law of God was changeless and its penalty could not be remitted, every transgressor must be forever debarred from the Creator's favor. He had claimed 
that the sinful race were placed beyond redemption and were therefore his rightful prey. But the death of Christ was an argument in man's behalf that could not be overthrown. The penalty of the law fell upon him who was equal with God, and man was free to accept the righteousness of Christ, and by a life of penitence and humiliation to triumph as the Son of God had triumphed over the power of Satan. Thus God is just, and yet the justifier of all who believe in Jesus. But it was not merely to accomplish the redemption of man that Christ came to the earth to suffer and to die. He came to magnify the law and to make it honorable, not alone that the inhabitants of this world might regard the law as it should be regarded, but it was to demonstrate to all the worlds of the universe that God's law is unchangeable. Could its claim have been set aside, then the Son of God need not have yielded up his life to atone for its transgression. The death of Christ proves its immutable, prove its immutable, and the sacrifice to which infinite love impelled the Father and the Son that sinners might be redeemed demonstrates to all the universe which what nothing less than this plan of atonement could have sufficed to do, that justice and mercy are the foundation of the law and government of God. In the final execution of the judgment, it will be seen that no cause for, its, for sin exists. When the judge of all the earth shall demand of Satan, Why hast thou rebelled against me and robbed me of the subjects of my kingdom? The originator of evil can render no excuse. Every mouth will be stopped, and all the hosts of rebellion will be speechless. The cross of Calvary, while it declares the, immute, the law immutable, proclaims to the universe that the wages of sin is death. In the Savior's expiring cry, it is finished. The debt knell of Satan was wrong. The great controversy, which had been so long in progress, was then decided, and the final eradication of evil was made certain. The Son of God passed through the portals of the tomb, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Hebrews 2 verse 14 Lucifer's desire for self-exaltation had led him to say, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. God declares, I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth, and never shalt thou be any more. Isaiah 14, verse 13 and 14. Ezekiel 28, verse 18 and 19. When the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Malachi 4, verse 1. The whole universe will have become witnesses to the nature and results of sin, and its utter extermination, which in the beginning would have brought fear to angels and dishonor to God, will now vindicate His love and establish His honor before the universe of beings who delight to do His will and whose heart is His law. Never will evil again be manifest, says the Word of God, 
Affliction shall not rise up the second time. Nahum 1 verse 9. The law of God which Satan has reproached as the yoke of bondage will be honored as the law of liberty. A tested and proved creation will never again be turned from allegiance to him whose character has been fully manifested before them as fathomless love and infinite wisdom. Let us pray. O most kind, beloved Heavenly Father, we are thankful, Lord, that you have given us the understanding of sin and the origin of evil. We pray, Father, for all that would listen to the message, all that would hear this very important message, for it is the message for this time. It is the present truth for this time and that all need to come to an understanding of the origin of sin and the root of this sin and the originator of the sin that has caused all type of malice and hatred and envy and evil and even has caused death upon the earth has brought disease and sickness of all type of nature. And Lord, mankind has fallen through being deceived by an evil angel who was once was, was part of heaven, who was a covering angel, but who got caught up in self-exaltation and pride. And through self-deception, and through envy, jealousy, and covetousness, coveting the power that is rightly Christ, one with the Father, and desiring to be in the secret councils of the Most High, not being a part of the, the council of God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son, his envy and jealousy of not being in that private council not knowing the secret mysteries of heaven and his envy and jealousy to desire to exalt himself above God and the, the government of God, even above the Son of God. All of this has caused sin to originate in his mind and in his thoughts. And we know, Lord, that you have said in your word that our thoughts and our feelings make up our moral character. And as he surrendered his thoughts and his will. His thinking and his reasoning was perverted, and he caused the fall not only of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Heaven, in the Garden of Eden, but have caused all humanity to now suffer death. And Lord, you have made a provision. O God, we're thankful that you in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you have sent your one and only begotten Son to be a living sacrifice and allowed Him, and He permitted Himself to be scourged, to be spat upon, to be bruised, to be whipped, and to suffer the agony and pain of mental anguish and pain in Gethsemane, and to go to the cross of Calvary and to die hung upon a tree between heaven and earth, 
and to give his life as a living sacrifice, to live a life of self-sacrificing love and to die such a death upon the cross of Calvary. We are thankful, O God of heaven, for your provision in giving up Jesus to be our sacrifice, to be our perpetuation, to take sin upon himself and to die this cruel death upon the cross of Calvary, to take upon himself the weight of all the sins of every human upon the earth and even all the angels. Lord, we're thankful this morning. We thank you again for all that you've done, all that you're doing and all that you will do as we are in the midst of the great controversy and we know that there is a warfare going on in the earth that all heaven awaits your second coming and that humanity needs to come into understanding of the origination of sin and the cause of sin. So, Lord, bless your people today. We ask again that you would open up the understanding of every soul that would hear the message, that you would soften the hearts of your people, that you would open up their ears to hear your still small voice, and that they would allow the Holy Spirit to enter in and to tabernacle within, and that this, 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 that the Holy Spirit would speak to every heart, and that your people would see their great need of Christ at this time. Father, please pour out your Spirit. Bless your people is our prayer. And we thank you, Lord, for all that you've done, all that you're doing, all that you will do in the midst of this great controversy. We ask that you would save your people, O Lord, and free us from the bondage, the slavery, captivity, to sin and the wages of sin, which is death. Help us, O Lord. Give us eternal salvation. Save us. Bring us into thy kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.